The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Read this text this last week and uh, began to ask this question in my mind. Uh, At what point lately have I thought in my mind I've had more than enough of this? You understand the question, right? It's that question that's like, I've reached the end of my rope. I can't take it anymore. I've had more than enough. I've had my fill, and I don't know how to move forward. When was the last time you may have felt that way? What were the circumstances that brought that up for you? As I prayed my way through this and thought about this this week, I thought of a couple of stories. The first one starts this way. I grew up with duct tape on my shoes. It might sound like a funny way to start a story. I grew up with duct tape on my shoes. Uh, I actually grew up just east of Lincoln, a little town called Walton. Um, old, uh, run-down uh, farmhouse on a hill right on A Street. It's no longer there. My mom and dad divorced when I was really young. Uh, my mom never remarried. Uh, she had a number of uh, health issues, emotional issues, addictions issues. Um, she grew up hard, a really hard life. And so we didn't have a whole lot to make ends meet. Um, so when my shoes got worn out, we began to develop holes in my shoes. My mom would grab her roll of duct tape, and she'd come over and just wrap them all up in that duct tape. And I would get a few more months of wear out of them. And we also lived on government assistance. That was part and parcel for where we were at. Um, And back then, you couldn't get an an EBT card. You get EBT cards today, I think. But you couldn't get one of those back then. Uh, When I was a kid, um, you would go and you'd stand in this really long line once a month. It would be on the south sidewalk of O Street right in between 9th Street and 10th Street. And you'd stand in that line so that you can get into the food stamp office so you can get your little booklet of food stamps. Um, And what would happen in that line as you stood there and as you waited was people would drive by on O Street and they'd hoot and holler at you and uh, hurl out all sorts of insults and profanities at uh, my mom and everybody in that line. It was a slow and shameful process um, growing up. You think... For me, my heart was formed and shaped by that growing up for years. That was the monthly process. In some regard, we were stuck in that system. Um, So I still remember staring down at my duct tape shoes as people are driving by yelling those insults at us and thinking some form of, I've had enough of this. I don't want anything to do with this anymore. My assumption is that all of us in this room understand what that gut feeling feels like. You may not have grown up with duct tape on your shoes. You may not have stood in a food stamp line. But you know what it's like to have a day or a whole lot of days where every time you wake up or every time you go to sleep, the thought rolling around in your head is, I've had enough. This is too hard. Last week, um, 
I received an email. Uh, if you think my first story was on one end of the spectrum, my next story is on the other end of the spectrum. Uh, I received an email explaining that uh, the cabin that our family uses, so my, my wife and I have seven kids, we have three grandbabies, a couple of our kids are married, so when we do our annual family vacation at the end of July, there's 17, 18 of us that are going to show up. So you need a big cabin, big house for us to all be in together for a week, and so we rent the same big massive cabin in South Dakota right around Sturgis time so we can take our bikes out there right around have a good time we enjoy South Dakota it's quiet it's peaceful it's beautiful um, so we rent this same cabin we typically rent it in January of every year pay the fees so on and so forth and we're excited to get there so that's coming up here in about two or three weeks I get an email that says that that cabin just got sold and the new owners are not going to honor the rental agreement and so now I'm frustrated right because if you understand anything <laughs> about this, you'd know that three weeks, three to four weeks away from go time in South Dakota, the prices have tripled, number one. And number two, you'd be lucky if you can even find a hole in the wall to sleep in. And so I'm frustrated about that. And within moments of getting that email, I got a phone call uh, from my wife. And she was explaining to me that another pastor in our community, um, longtime friend at this point for me, not not... I don't want to overextend the story. I'm not, not a real close friend, but a good friend, a man that I love, respect, count as a, uh, um, a colleague for sure, man who would text me a few times a year and say, how can our church be praying for your church and how can I pray for your kids? Um, one of his daughters, great friends with our youngest daughter. Um, my wife called to let me know that he passed away unexpectedly from a massive heart attack. Same age as I am, in much better health than I am, just passed away at the steering wheel after working out. That rocked my world. Um, that was one of those days, too, where I went home and I just thought, yeah, I wish this day could be wiped off the calendar completely. I don't even know how you go to sleep. You know what that day's like, right? Think about the last couple of years, right? If those stories aren't enough, as I was thinking, praying my way through this, think about the last couple of years, 2020, 2021, rough years to experience. Uh, I think for me, the way that I've described it is it kind of feels like an all-out attack was happening. I don't know if anybody else felt that way. Like you got bombs dropping in the backyard over those two years. All sorts of crazy things going on that we're trying to survive, right? You're, you're trying to survive COVID. You're trying to survive isolation. You're trying to survive sickness, death, political polarization, social upheaval, financial pressure. The list just goes on and on. And if you've seen any of the storms that have rolled through lately with all those massive chunks of hail, that's what those years felt like to me, like there's just massive hail just dropping in the backyard. <laughs> Mushroom clouds everywhere. <clears throat> now we're in 2022, and uh, the way I've described it is it kind of feels like we're crawling out of our bunkers a little bit. Anybody get that feeling? Like you're just kind of crawling out of your bunker. You're a little bit jumpy every time something goes off, every time something happens. As Adam prayed, I got that same feeling in my gut, like, oh, like on one hand, I feel like I'm celebrating, and on the other hand, I'm simultaneously also fearful and concerned, right? There's that tension between those two feelings just after the experience of the last 
few years. So I think over the last few years, we all know what it's like to be in that place, to either go to bed at night or wake up in the morning and go, and think I've had enough. I think if you look at verses 3 and 4 of our text, I think that's the tone you get. I think that's where the psalmist is at. You look at verses 3 and 4, you meet somebody who says, hey, I've had more than enough. I've had more than enough of the difficulties and the suffering of this life, especially when that difficulty or that suffering has actually been brought on by somebody else. Look at what he says, verses 3 and 4. He says, we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Question that this brought up for me is, what do you do on that day when you recognize, I can't take it anymore? I've had more than enough. The first thing I notice about the psalmist here is that he looks up to the king of heaven. It's the first thing that he does. Looks up to the king of heaven. He says, to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. It's a really short, simple statement, isn't it? But in this short, in this very simple, but I think very profound, powerful little statement, the psalmist lifts up his eyes from the circumstances that are all around him. He lifts his eyes up, and he locks his eyes on the God who is seated on the throne. This is the God who uses the earth as his lazy boy footrest. This is the God who simultaneously holds the world and the entire universe in the palm of his hand. This is the king of heaven. Absolutely breathtaking. (coughs) What the psalmist is no longer doing is he's no longer lamenting like we saw in the 120th Psalm. He's not looking to the hills like we saw in the 121st Psalm. He's not looking to the temple in Jerusalem like we saw in the 122nd Psalm. The psalmist has now ascended, right? Or he's climbed the steps of what I think uh, sounds like a human processing. He started down at the bottom step of lament. He moved up to the second step of being reminded that the hills have a creator. Then he moved to the third step of actually delighting in the presence of God in the temple, and now he's on the next step. And on this step, on this fourth step, he's looking right into the eyes of the king of heaven. Ever notice how the circumstances around you so easily get your attention and distract you from what's most important? Because we live in a physical world, and our physical circumstances can easily distract us from what's most important. And what's most important here is the king of heaven. And that's who the psalmist is looking to. He's moved up from all the circumstances of this life, and he's got his eyes locked right into the eyes of the king of heaven. There is absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing that has happened. There's nothing that is happening. And there's nothing that will ever happen that gets past the eyes of the king of kings. Nothing surprises the king of kings. 
My duct tape shoes didn't surprise him. My vacation home fiasco, first world problem, didn't surprise him. My friend's deathless last week, though sudden and at a young age, and though completely beyond my scope of understanding or reasoning, it didn't surprise him. The events of the last few years didn't surprise him. Why? Because he's the king. He's the king who is seated on his throne in heaven. <clears throat> and because of that truth, our psalmist is able to wait in complete dependence on his master. That's the second thing you notice in the text as you're looking at it. What the psalmist is doing is he's waiting in dependence on his master. Verse 2, he says, behold. In other words, look. There's a lot of words used in this text to get our attention when it comes to our eyes and what we're looking at. Behold, or look at this. As the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. I love that song that we sang this morning. His mercy is more. It's a beautiful song. I love that song when all of the instruments die out and all you can hear is voices. Reminding one another that his mercy is more. There's a twofold illustration in verse 2 that the psalmist uses. The twofold illustration of servants uh, looking to their master, number one. And a maidservant looking to her mistress, number two. Those two illustrations, those images that the psalmist is wanting us to look at, to behold, to use our eyes to see, is meant to bring up an image of someone who is completely, fully dependent and fully waiting patiently for God to act. Like, ask yourself this question. What do I have a tendency to depend on? What do I have a tendency to depend on? I don't know about you, but when I reach a point where enough is enough, when I get to that point where I, where I feel like I'm at the end of my rope, it's really hard for me to just remain fully dependent upon God. I like to put the best face on and try to convince you that I am, but I admit that it's hard for me. I'm a doer. I'm a fixer. It's certainly hard for me to wait patiently. When I reach that point where I, I feel like I can't take it anymore, what I begin to do is I begin to hunger. I begin to thirst. <coughs> I begin to long for some kind of relief from the circumstances. You know what that's like, right? When you get that feeling like I've had enough, again, my wife and I raised seven kids, and I would say over the last two or three years, we've walked through some pretty bumpy roads with a few of our kids. Um, we are down to just two left in the house. Uh, we'll have a senior this year and, uh, and a junior. Um, but there were seasons, if you've raised kids, you know, right? Like, kids are human, <laughs> and, they're, and they're sinful, <laughs> 
And then so am I as a dad. There were some seasons there where it felt like it was unbearable at times. Points where I would say, God, I, I wish that you would bring this season to an end and fix things. He didn't always do it in my timing. Typically has his own timing. I always tell my kids, if you're praying for patience, he's probably not going to give you patience. He's probably going to give you an opportunity to uh, learn how to be patient. <laughs> so for a guy like me who likes to get things done quick and likes to see some produce and some, some results at the end, um, it is a gracious thing that God gave me six daughters and a son. <laughs> Maybe just letting you know I had six daughters and a son was enough to... <laughs> six girls, man. Every time one of them want to have a friend over, the other one wants to have a friend over, so you wind up with 12 girls in your home. And, and they can't, you know, agree on anything from what color they're going to dye their hair to what they're going to watch on TV to what kind of ice cream they're going to eat, so... Yeah, some of those years were tough. Some of those years were beautiful, too. I think all of us at some point, we, we long for some kind of relief amidst painful, difficult circumstances. And there's a number of things that we probably look to, right? In this most recent season, I think the gut reaction over the last few years is to look to some kind of legislation or some kind of political leadership. Um, not necessarily wrong to be involved in those things. Please don't hear me wrong. But oftentimes we can look for relief in those things. Lots of other places we look for relief in too. Sometimes the bottom of a bottle or maybe it's the thrill of the next major expenditure. Maybe it's the intoxication of late-night pornography. We look for relief in these places, right? As some folks um, look for relief just by simply checking out behind the TV. Others find a sense of relief by complaining all over social media. We know what that's like, too. As if those who are listening are really going to help. But none of those forms of relief seeking at the end of the day are going to produce any kind of lasting, life-giving substance. In our text, when you look at the servants and you, and you, and you, and you look at the maidservant, they know that the only kind of lasting relief they're going to get is going to come from the hand of their master because he's trustworthy, he's faithful, he never lets you down, holds the world in the palm of his hand. Anything outside the master's hand of provision is going to ultimately fail and cause greater suffering in your life. And the maidservant understands that. That's why she looks to the hand of her, her mistress in complete trust and complete dependence. Ultimately, at the end of the day, God's mercy, according to the psalmist, God's mercy is the only life-giving substance that they are looking for. It's the only life-giving substance that can, re, that, can, that can take away the pain of suffering, that can give a sense of relief. This is why the psalmist asked God to be merciful. Verse 3, 
psalmist cries out to God in prayer. And what does he say? He says, have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we've had more than enough of contempt. So when I was a kid, we used to play this game called Uncle. Anybody remember that game? Raise your hand if you did. Okay, there we go. Played this game called Uncle. <laughs> it's a stupid game, really. I mean, I don't know what's wrong with us when we're young. <laughs> this is a game where you would willingly allow somebody else to come over and twist your arm up behind your back, you know, until the pain was so stinking intense. <clears throat> you cry out, Uncle, <laughs> Uncle, stop. <laughs> That's the image I get. When I see the psalmist crying out for mercy twice over, you're, you're basically begging for mercy. Relieve the pain. Stop twisting my arm up behind my back. The psalmist here literally has had enough of the pain and the suffering he's been enduring. He's crying out for mercy from the only person who can truly give it. The shame and the pain of constantly being belittled, constantly being mocked by those around him. That's, that's pushed the psalmist to this point of desperation, he's crying out to God for merciful relief. I'll take it. Thank you. I don't, I don't, I don't exactly know who the psalmist's enemies were. I think scholars and commentaries tell you a few different things. I don't know exactly who they were. I don't know who it was he's talking about in the text. I do know this. From the text, his enemies are taunting him and they're belittling him and they're shaming him. And I think about that and I go, man, who are my enemies? Who are your enemies? I know this for sure. As much as it's hard to say, I think for, for me and, and probably for most of us, um, the Democrats on this side are not my enemy <laughs> and the Republicans on this side aren't my enemy either uh, the scriptures are really clear that my battle is not against other people our battle is not against flesh and blood right it's hard to remember that I do know for sure from the scriptures, I do know who our enemies are. Satan, sin, and death. Satan, sin, and death. Those are our mortal enemies. You think about Satan for a minute. What does he do? Loves to shame us. Loves to blame us. Loves to condemn us. Sin. What does sin do? Sin loves to mock you. Loves to tempt you. How about death? Death loves to intimidate us, loves to scare us. I mean, the image of the Grim Reaper is a pretty scary image, and that's the image of death. It's meant to intimidate, to scare. Satan, sin, and death often use, if not always use, earthly circumstances, right? Suffering, hardship, and they use those things as tools to insult us, to belittle us, to shame us into looking down at our feet in defeat. For me, it comes back to that memory, duct tape on my shoes, looking down at my feet in defeat. 
What is it in your life that has caused you to look down at your feet in defeat? Because the thing that I think we each need to be reminded of this morning is that those painful earthly circumstances, though they may be tools in the hands of our mortal enemies, are also simultaneously tools in the hands of a good heavenly father. A good heavenly father that are meant to cause you and I to look up. To look up to the king of heaven. To wait in dependence on our master for his provision. To ask our father for mercy. In the midst of all that, remembering that this earth is not our home. (coughs) This earth is not our home. We're merely just pilgrims traveling through on a journey to heaven. My friend who died last week, he'll never cry the same tears that I cried last week. He made it successfully. He threw off his crutches, so to speak, if you think of Pilgrim's Progress. And he walked in without a limp. There's no kingdom this side of heaven outside of the church that's going to last. When I survey the cross of Christ, what do I see? What do you see? When I take all of this to the cross of Christ, I see a Savior, my Savior, beaten, bloodied, bruised, enduring shame at the cross, enduring insults of humanity with pure joy, The scriptures tell us that for the joy that was set before him, he went to that cross. He did that as he looked to the king of heaven on that cross. That's who he was looking to as his father in heaven. He's waiting in complete dependence upon his father. He's crying out for God to be merciful. Even here in his prayer where he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, why have you forsaken me? Feels alone. When I look to the cross, I see a Savior doing exactly what the psalmist is doing in our text when he's had more than enough. So for me, when I get to that picture in my head, when I get to that story in my mind and my heart, what's happening is I'm being strengthened. I'm being strengthened by the power of the cross. I'm being strengthened by the victory of the empty tomb. I'm being strengthened by the promise of heaven. And as I think about that message of the gospel, knowing that my Savior endured all of that for me and for you, I get empowered in those moments, strengthened in those moments to forget what lies behind, to strain forward to what lies ahead, to to press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. When I think about that passage when When Paul says, forgetting what lies behind. I had a friend of mine a long time ago, he says, you know, you look at that, forget doesn't mean forget. And I'm like, wait a minute, heresy? (laughs) Forget doesn't mean forget. His point was, is in the original Greek, what it means is I'm not going to let this control me. I'm going to leave that past in the past. So forget does mean forget. (laughs) And I'm going to move on. I'm going to keep my eyes Locked on what's ahead, the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That means I'm going to lift my eyes up out of the circumstances of this life, and I'm going to lock them right on the king who is seated 
on his throne forever. The one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he doesn't change. The one who never leaves you or forsakes you in your circumstances. The one who looks at you and says, your greatest qualification for coming into my presence is a recognition of your own sin and brokenness. That's crazy. So in conclusion, I'll leave you with one last thing. The last thing I want to say to you is take heart. I don't know how you walked in here this morning. I don't know what area of your life recently you're in that place where you're saying, I've had enough and I can't take it anymore. Something happened in your marriage, something going on in your family, something happening with friends, the political climate. I don't know. Maybe some long-lasting root of sin that you've been battling. Whatever that area of your life is where you're saying, enough is enough, I've had it. I want to encourage you with two quick observations. When you read this text again, I think you would notice with me that there are, there are two basic applications I think we can make. Like the go-do thing. The first of all, you'll notice in the text that he starts off by saying, I lift up my eyes. This is a very personal statement. The rest of the text is filled with we's, right? Us and we. When you think about those two things, what I see is, is a man who is saying, not only am I personally, in my own personal walk, turning my eyes to the God of heaven, to the King of heaven, but he's also saying we and us. This road that we walk, this pilgrim's progress, if you will, was never meant to be walked alone. And yet, even as you walk in community, you must also be walking that personally. So I give you those two pieces of very brief application. One, personally walk with Jesus on a daily basis. Practice the disciplines. Open up the word. Make the time. Find your spot. My spot is this, is this little chair in my house in front of a bay window where my Siberian husky continues to come and lick my hand while I'm trying to read the word. <laughs> That's my spot. Second, um, find community outside of the Sunday gathering. Many ways you can do that. Walk with other people. The story of celebrating 50 years of marriage, I heard that all over your story. We've walked this with people. Don't walk that alone. Jesus didn't create us to be Lone Ranger Christians. Even Lone Ranger had a tonto. Walk that with people. So, walk it personally and walk it with others. Otherwise, take heart as you do so. If you feel like you've had more than enough of whatever you walked in with today, what I want you to rest assured with today, outside of those things that you can go do, is I want you to rest assured that when you woke up or when you wake up or when you go to sleep and you say, I've had more than enough, I want you to be able to trust and know that Jesus is more than enough for you. Jesus is more than enough for the circumstances of your life where you're saying, I've had more than enough. 
I would encourage you to find a spot kneeling down at the foot of a bloody cross in your imagery. And as you kneel down at the foot of that bloody cross, behold or look through and into the doorway of an empty tomb. Recognize Jesus beat Satan's sin and death. They have no power over you anymore. At the same time, cling tightly, hold tightly to the promise of heaven. The promise of eternity always reminds me I'm not in heaven yet. Protects me two different ways. I don't get so discouraged when things don't go my way this side of heaven. And I also don't try to set up a kingdom this side of heaven that's not heaven. From those vantage points, bloody cross, empty tomb, promise of heaven, on this, what I call an ascending stairway, since this is a psalm of ascent, from that place, you look to the king of heaven, you wait dependently on your master, and you ask the father for mercy. And you do this because you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Christ himself is more than enough when you feel like you've had more than enough. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for that truth that you, Jesus, are more than enough for us when we feel like we've had more than enough. Father, you, you know these people in this room. You see every part and piece of their lives and their hearts. God, I ask that you would come in these closing moments and, and uh, do a work in their hearts. Help them to, to look to you in these moments. Look to the power of the cross as we go into a time of communion and worship and closing prayers. Come and reveal once more to each of us that you are more than enough for us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.